Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. Historians of the long civil rights movement have largely focused on the work of national organizations and their leaders, most of whom were men, and struggles that took place in urban areas. But our understanding of the Black freedom struggle is incomplete without considering how the movement toward racial justice took form in rural areas largely unnoticed by the media, and how community leaders, many of them women, challenged the inequality, poverty, and systemic racism that define their lives and those of their children. Our guest today is Catherine Mellon Sharon, an associate professor from the History Department at North Carolina State University. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Kat has been working on a project exploring how a network of activists in rural northeastern North Carolina deployed Black power and women's liberation politics to affirm community identity, pursue justice, and achieve economic self-determination. Welcome, Kat. Thank you, Robert. It's wonderful to be here. So I want you to talk to our listeners initially about a woman who is a focus of your study, Evangeline Grant Redding Briley, uh, who grew up in Tillery, North Carolina. So could you tell our listeners more about her, her background, and about her uh, hometown, Tillery? Sure. Evangeline Grant grew up in Tillery, in the Tillery community, which is one of 13 African-American farming communities established by the New Deal Resettlement Administration. And the idea was to enable uh, Black tenant farmers and Black sharecroppers to become landowners. Uh, It was an experimental community and her family was able to acquire land and hold on to it through much struggle. And so coming from this place really shaped her. And in fact, when she talks about the ways it shaped her, that's where I draw the title. And her assertion is, quote, we were dreamers, possibility thinkers, young farmers passionate about education, justice, and independence, end quote. So the title of my book actually is Possibility Thinkers, Women in Rural Black Power in North Carolina. And she, in her life and in her work, was quite iconoclastic for the time. She criticized Black men, and also there's a famous cross ride in which she participated. Could you tell us more about both of those activities? Sure. Let me give you a little background of her. Uh, I'll give you a little overview of her entire activist career. So she started her career uh, in 1970 when she became the first Black woman in the state and only the second in the South to produce and host her own public affairs television program for a commercial television station, uh, WNCT Channel 9 in Greenville, North Carolina. And from there, she also developed and produced and hosted two series that were broadcast Uh, by the University of North Carolina Public Television Network. Uh, One was about the integration of public schools in the state, and the other was a celebration of Black history and Black culture from a rural perspective. While she was doing this, she learned more about the 
power the media. She was completely self-taught in terms of producing television shows. And she is one of the pioneers in the history of African-Americans entering the field of television, uh, except she's coming at it from a rural perspective, which is quite unusual. And so once she had had these experiences, she learned the power of the media, and that is something she would use for the rest of her career. So you mentioned that. She was also the first cultural arts planner at Soul City, which was Floyd McKissick's planned community in Warren County. And from there, she published the controversial book called Nothing, The Mentality of the Black Woman, uh, which does have critiques of Black men and what they're not doing. And then in 1977, she strapped herself to the back of a giant cross in a pickup truck and rode down Interstate I-85 from Halifax County, North Carolina to Birmingham, Alabama uh, to call attention to women and children's issues and to raise funds for a foundation she and other women had established to redress them. Well, wow. So, you know, the Black Power Movement um, has been portrayed, at least in mainstream criticism, as a largely urban phenomenon led predominantly by radical men. But you're here focusing on, on women leaders and also the feminist movement, at least in terms of mainstream reception, has been often depicted as kind of a rather white movement uh, as well. And you're exploring the intersections between these movements. And of course, you're looking at a rural focus with female leaders. So this is a major contribution. So can you unpack those contributions a bit for us, please? Right. When people hear the words black power today, I think the first one of the first things that probably comes to everybody's mind are iconic photographs of the Black Panthers, urban in the West, in the Northeast. And so we have a very limited general understanding of black power itself and who was involved. And then the, when we think of the women's liberation movement, we tend to think of it occurring also in urban areas, but principally outside of the South. And so my work sits at the intersection of these two things. You know, I'm not claiming that there's a black power movement per se in the way that we think about movements developing with the help of organizations and outsiders coming in, although there is some of that. But it's thinking about black power politics, black power economics, and black power culture as they manifested from this rural space in the activities. Uh, that women undertook. My project is not about adding rural Black power and stirring it into the mix of what we already know, but it's taking Black power politics seriously on their own terms and how they emerge from this space. And then I think that's going to give us a different view of what Black power and that era and that movement and these politics mean. But there are clear differences between rural and urban dwelling. Can you talk to us a bit more about what those differences are, particularly for land-holding African-Americans at the, in the time period that you're exploring? At this time, you have to remember, 
the Black Power moment in history emerges after the Civil Rights Movement. And a lot of the rest of America sees the South, the rural South, as backward and somehow left behind. So when we talk about how these things emerge from this, land ownership is certainly key. But it, it's not always land ownership that determines people's activism. Uh, but it certainly helps because as landowners, you have the economic independence. You usually have more access to education. And you have leadership roles in the community because of that independence. But what I'm finding is that many of these Black landowners in the northeastern part of North Carolina were also entrepreneurs. Uh, they had businesses, a gas station. Evangeline Grant's father had a gas station. He had a casket manufacturing company uh, in Tillery. One of the things about Black power in urban spaces is that the community needs to have control, economic control, and control of schools. Um, and a lot of times in rural spaces, you don't have to make an argument to develop community control because it's already there, which of course is an outcome of segregation itself. And you retain community control because you keep those businesses there. So I wanna shift us to your work as a historian in archives. Uh, of course, one of the challenges historians uh, are faced with in reconstructing events in remote areas, particularly areas marked by poverty, is a lack of archival materials. And you have exclusive access to the Evangeline Grant archive. Tell us a little bit about your exploration in terms of digging through these archives and what surprises you found. One of the greatest obstacles to uncovering this history is the lack of black authored rural sources, because you have a lot of sources from philanthropic organizations or state organizations seeking to do rural economic development. But most of that is from a white perspective. And it looks at poverty from a certain perspective as well and makes certain assumptions. And so when you have black authored sources, it's a totally different view. And I think one of the most exciting things for me in terms of working with uh, Evangeline Grant's personal private archive are things like the audiovisual materials from her television shows that have survived. And you know, back when these television shows were made, they, it was standard practice to reuse the tape. So no one has these shows uh, in an archive. So to be able to see them and read them and write about them is very exciting. Another way to supplement the lack of archival documents uh, that I've been engaging in is conducting oral history interviews uh, with some of the main people and activists, including, of course, Evangeline Grant, but also other people who were part of that larger network to which she belonged. Um, and so oral history has been very important to my process and my methodology. And I'm talking about oral histories with people like Eva Clayton, who was the executive director 
of the Soul City Foundation and then seg that into a career in state politics. And then in 1992 became one of the first African-Americans from North Carolina elected to serve in the US Congress since 1901. And so talking with Mrs. Clayton, of course, provides all kinds of insights and, and her angle is kind of community economic development uh, is what she spent her career doing as well as politics. So you can follow Eva Clayton and see kind of the long-term outcome, political outcome of this black power moment in rural Northeastern North Carolina. And then I've interviewed someone like Valeria Lee who started WVSP, Voices Serving the People, which was a radio station in Warren County. It was the first African-American community radio station in the nation affiliated with National Public Radio. Um, and here again, it's broadcasting from a rural area back out to urban areas. You know, following someone like Valeria Lee's career, after she left the radio station, she began working for Z. Smith Reynolds uh, as a program officer who oversaw rural issues, women's issues and minority issues. And then she becomes the head of the Golden Leaf Foundation. And so following her out from this 1970s moment, you see kind of another approach of dealing with like the philanthropic world and funding and outcome and to continue the politics of self-empowerment just by different avenues. Um, so there's a wealth of people to talk to, and the plot constantly thickens. A final question, a uh, more personal question to you. So your previous book was on the educator and activist Septima Clark. Can you talk about what draws you to stories of women like her and Evangeline Grant? Well, you know, it's turned out I've ended up being a historical biographer. I use biography as a lens into the broader issues that I want to research and write about. And one of the interesting things about being a biographer is that it challenges our received notions because people's lives don't fit into neat timelines that historians say, you know, okay, the civil rights movement was from here to here, and Black power was from here to here. People live their lives across a much longer space of time and many different spaces as well. And so it gives you additional insight. The key to being able to use biography as a lens into a broader history is identifying good subjects people whose lives have not only good stories to tell, but very important implications across time and space. Thank you so much, Catherine mellon Sharon, And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.